you have one of your own or if you've ever loved a teenager, you know and have experienced as they grow up the need to start pushing away and pushing back and becoming who they need to be in the world. And for those of us closest to them, it's, of course, the hardest to be uh, pushed away at this time of life. Then there are moments uh, that are different than that. And one such happened last week on a Monday when I can do so. I picked Eliana up from the bus and she got in the car and she closed the door and she immediately put her head on the armrest between our seats and said, I'm so glad to be back with Mama. I was immediately suspicious. <laughs> so I said, hmm, I'm glad to see you too, sweetie. How was your day? Fine. And I'm like, there's just no way she gets in the car like that and her day has been fine. So I asked her again, what, what happened today? What, what happened at school? And as I pushed a little, she told me that there was a rumor that the clown killers were coming to Revere and that they were expected to be there sometime around noon or one o'clock and that she and her classmates were and her grade mates were very concerned and they were worried about this and that they watched the clock till they got to 12, 12, 12.45, 1 o'clock. Finally, it appeared that the danger was past and there were going to be no clown people coming to her school. But this is the same child who last year was at Revere and told at one point to get under her desk with the rest of her class because they thought there was an active shooter on campus and all of them were on lockdown and they knew the procedure uh, and they got under their desks. And I remember talking to her then and saying, what was that like? That had to be absolutely terrifying. And she said, for the most part, it was okay. But there was one moment, Mom, when I realized someone might be coming in here to kill us. What does it mean to send our children out into such a world? After this summer, after the many things we heard about and witnessed this summer, this was on my mind a lot and as we traveled in Israel and kept reading the news what I went through with Eliana and, and her and all of her age mates and what it means for them and I was not sure if this was a sermon that was going to feel like it was going to resonate right now things are pretty calm and I was speaking to Judy about whether or not this felt like it was universal enough a talk to give and I it, it was right at that time that the phone rang and it was a congregant saying that her daughter lived two blocks down from where the bomb in New York had gone off recently. And that she's read all the news. She knows what's happening in the world. She meditates. She's connected to community. She does all the right things. She goes to yoga. She knows how to take care of herself and renew herself spiritually. She said, but Rabbi, I just couldn't shake this one. My daughter could have been walking right by that block. She walks by it all the time. And she could have been walking there at that moment. And I just can't shake it. Because that one was different. They all are different. And every human being it touches or takes is unique and precious. We all remember UCLA. You have people here 
who know people who work there, who go to school there. It happens right in our backyard. And when we turn on the news, we see that it happens in Brussels and Nice and Paris and Libya and Tel Aviv and Baghdad and Mosul on a playground in Lahore, Pakistan, at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, at the Istanbul airport in Turkey. It's happening everywhere. In speaking about what it was, I could even say about this condition we're living with. I happen to be reading Rabbi Harold Kushner and an article by Aviva Zorenberg. And they, Zorenberg lifts up this midrashic tradition around Sarah Imenu, Sarah our mother. And she says that many of us have been taught that the Akedah, the binding of Isaac that happened that we read on Rosh Hashanah, that immediately following that episode, the next sentence in Torah starts the Parsha Vaychaye Sarah, which is, and Sarah lived to be X amount of years and she dies. And the rabbis don't see a lot of accidents in the Torah. They read the Torah like a love letter and they say there must be a message here for us. Why is it that Sarah dies right after the Akedah, right after the binding of Isaac? And there's a Midrashic tradition that says, because this was such a moment of faith, a true passing of the test of faith, according to tradition of our father, Avraham, that the prosecuting angel, Satan, can't stand it. And Satan has to come and do something to shake things up. This is too good between God and Israel. And it's Satan's job to always try to prosecute and lift up the worst in us. And goes to Sarah and says, where's your husband and where's your son? And Sarah knows that they've gotten up and have left before dawn. And Satan says, I'm going to show you where they are. And Satan shows Sarah, Isaac bound on the altar with Abraham's knife-filled hand raised above her son. And at that moment, Sarah dies of grief. The Midrashic tradition sees this moment not as one of reality, but it doesn't matter for Sarah because she believes that it's true. And the Midrashic tradition ties the sound of the crying of the shofar to this cry of Sarah that she makes at this moment, just before she dies. Rosh Hashanah is called in some of our sources, Yom Yivava. What is Yivava? First of all, it is the very sound of onomatopoeia, says, Rabbi, uh, says Aviva Zorenberg. It conveys the wordless sound made by women, particularly at moments of birth or death, at extreme moments when all normal patterns and neat understandings of the world break down. Words, too, break down. And all one has are these wordless cries. That's a yivava, basically a howl. For there's something animal about the sound. It's a failure of articulation, a song without words, because there is no possibility of words. It's the sound that is the opposite of crying to God in one's heart. To cry to God in one's heart means to be directed, to know where to turn, as in prayer. Yivava is the sound made by what the prophet Hosea calls, Mekachashim bishkacha, 
those who really don't think there is anywhere to turn or that there is any meaning in reality. This is the cry that we hear all around the world. This cry of agony, of wordless agony, we hear all around the world. We hear it in our own midst. We hear it in the people sitting next to us, sometimes in our own hearts and lives. What does it mean to tie teshuva, to tie the sound of the shofar to that? How does that make any sense? And Zorenberg goes on to say that doing teshuva at the start of the year is about bringing healing because the world is sick and broken and needs repair. We tie the beginning of the year to teshuva. We don't just celebrate and have a party like New Year's Eve. We do this crazy business of blowing shofar and doing teshuva and wailing and crying that we want to be different. And that this is a universal instinct, she says. There are so many cultures in the history of this world. As an anthropologist, we use the term terrestrial human culture. Throughout terrestrial human culture, there is an impulse at the beginnings of things to touch original beginning. To touch the original start of things. Some of those rituals look like the shaman sitting on a rock in such a way to say, we claim now that the world has become firmer again and not tilting out of control, not tipping out of control. Other cultures draw lines in the dust and say now the cracks are all filled up. Or they walk singing over the original lines of the universe in order to bring them together again. This universal instinct, Zorenberg says, for us as Jews in coming back to our significant beginning, strangely and tragically is not the comfortable idea of filling in cracks and sitting on stones. It's actually reuniting, empathizing with a moment of the worst anguish possible. We come to the new year touching the significant beginning by feeling Sarah's anguish. Because we are so afraid that it could happen to us. And because we need to consider there are moments where we feel as if it might be better not to have lived. In our tradition, there's a verse that says, Ashrei ha'am yodei tru'ah. Happy is the people that knows tru'ah, the sound of the shofar. But if this is the interpretation we're going with, how can we possibly say, Ashrei ha'am she yodei tru'ah? How can we possibly say, happy is the people that knows this sound? And Rav Hutner says that the only way of arriving at affirmative and transcendental statements is by thoroughly confronting the statements that speak of vertigo, of apparent meaninglessness. Such statements destroy all the illusions about what would make the world or human life worth living for. If we take this idea seriously, then we understand the verse about blowing shofar, ashrei ha'am yodetruah, to say happy, solidly happy, realistically happy, are a people who know truah who know what it is like to cry in the mode of yalala, who understand life on that basis. Only such a people can go beyond that. 
And if you know people who have gone beyond that, then you know people who know something about a mature happiness, a real happiness. They live in the constant tension of the absolute best that this world can offer and what it can take from us. Ashrei ha'am yodei tru'ah. To be really maturely happy, we have to be able to hold the all of it. Rabbi Milton Steidenberg once wrote that we all talk about the fear of death and we know about the fear of death, he says, but because only human beings can imagine the future, only human beings have the fear of life. Because life can disappoint us in so many ways. And because there are people in our world we care about, life can hurt us so deeply. And so he says we must therefore live a life of disillusionment. Meaning having the courage to face life as it is, as it really is, without illusions. When we face our own problems and challenges and the tragedies of living, we find that we are stronger than we, are, than we knew and are connected to so many people who are experiencing the very same thing. The part of this past Shabbat that we studied together is the one where Moses is beginning to close his last speech to the people. He's been told he won't cross over into the Jordan. And he gives them his final words. And he says to them, he knows they're frightened. He knows they're moving into something dangerous. And what's on the other side is unknown to them. And he says to them, Be strong and be of good courage. And he turns to Joshua who's going to take on the leadership of this people and says to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Pinchas Peli writes that Israeli soldiers, when they're sworn in, they're often sworn in at Masada, the place of never again, the place of getting up and living in resilience and defiance despite what the world can do. That at that ceremony where they are with friends and family, they are given two things, a gun and a Bible. One is for strength and one is for good courage. Because Pelly writes one without the other won't do it. We have to be realistic. That's the gun. We have to be clear eyed and practical and know how to fight terror wherever it lurks to end the slaughter of innocents however we can and to give violent neighborhoods real hope so that there's an alternative to the spiral of crime and violence we will hear from a hero of that at 4.30 and we have to have real, grounded, tested outrageous faith that'd be the Torah that life is infinitely precious and worth living fully and well We must accompany each other through the dangers and terrible realities that are a part of living in this world that we're given. To hear each other's stories, to live into the stories of our people and its call. Be strong and be of good courage. This is how we find true grown-up happiness. Eliana experienced with her peers a moment of terror. In school. But she also experienced the next day when she came to school 
her teacher, Amber Spence, who told the kids in no uncertain terms they needed to sit down and be quiet right now. And it was in that quiet tone that lets them know they need to do it right now. And they sat down and she stood in front of them and she started to cry as she said, I know that what happened yesterday was really scary. I want you to know that I was scared too. But I also want you to know that I'm a mama bear and you are my cubs. And anyone who comes into this den to do anything to harm you will have to face me. I am here to protect you and I will do whatever it takes to keep you safe. We need to keep each other safe in the ways that we can because as our liturgy tells us, there are things that will happen that we can't control. What we can do is be there for one another. To be strong and of good courage together and to promise one another and to fulfill those promises that we will keep each other safe no matter what happens, no matter what comes. As I was writing and thinking about all of this and studying and reflecting, my good friend, folk singer and songwriter, Sarah Thompson, sent me a Facebook post of a song for a trio. And the trio who posted the song, you'll find it on YouTube if you want to when you go home. I promise you'll remember the title. I promise. This trio... It gave me absolute chill bumps everywhere. And the trio posted, the reason they were posting this video is they said, with everything happening all over the world, all over the world, my friends and I wanted to share some love the best way we know how. And what better way than this powerful song? And so we, I sent it to Chaim and said, he knew what I was speaking about. And I said, what do you think, Chaim? It, it blew me away. And he said, absolutely. We need to sing it. To close your sermon. And so we will. Randall will join us. Our own musical director, Michael Asher, arranged it for us. And we offer it to you as the closing reflection. How many roads must a man walk down? Before you can call him a man How many seas must a white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The Sir is blowing in the wind.
before it washed to the sea. How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head Pretending he just doesn't see The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind 